Hey, oh, wait. Roden. Driving. Roden? Driving. Roden more. Riding, you mean? Watching the maps. Well, watching not the... watching the maps accordingly. <laughs> According to the last one, um, that happens. We got to figure out a better method for that. Yeah, I think we need a navigator. Mm-hmm. We're we're gonna hire a part-time navigator. Um, the pay will be commensurate with your skill level, mm-hmm. um, and it would be no less than one penny and no more than one dollar per weekend. So um, that's pretty cheap. I don't you think have you're to be able to sit any... on nothing because oh. there's no room. So. <laughs> There's a cooler. Stand. There's a cooler back there. They can yeah, there's a, we could customize the cooler with some styrofoam on top, like just a piece of styrofoam. Yeah, and the seatbelt. Yeah. So speaking of styrofoam, um, <laughs> let's let's talk about reloading. What does that have to do with? Sty- I I knew you were going to say it like that. What does that? It, I think it that was, was the a point. perfect segue. I think that was the perfect. That was the point. Like You're there's weird. things about reloading that have nothing to do with other things. And Good some point. of them are really important. Some of them really aren't. Now I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we wanted to share our reloading process. We get that question from time to time, and honestly, it's it's more infrequent than other questions, which is cool with me. It means that people are either squared away with reloading or don't realize. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't realize that there is some stuff that you should or shouldn't be doing. So. I figured we could go through each one of our processes. They're very similar. Um, and then we can talk more about why we prioritize certain things and certain pitfalls that you could run into or issues that you could run into. Yeah. And issues we've seen, experienced personally, and heard of. So. Mm-hmm. And on this point, before we get going into the reloading nuts and bet- nuts and bolts, <laughs> I was trying to say meat and potatoes, nuts and bolts, and I was like, <laughs> meat and nuts. <laughs> Meat and nuts and bolts and potatoes. Yeah, there you go. That. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, Basically, the same thing you don't want to do with, like, your dyes. Like, don't put a dasher through a Creedmoor. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, we cannot. We cannot but, uh, cut that out. we no. got to save all that goodness. Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> the What I was going to say was, if, if you're new to this sport and you got into reloading through, let's call it the internet method, where you buy whatever the internet says and you just read some stuff and then you pull a handle and you have a lot of mistakes, you owe it to yourself to find a, a book because there are a few things with reloading that candidly, you're not able to just read through the internet because you're missing so much. There's a lot of detail in the technical how, why and reasons why you do certain things. And I'm not talking about like, Oh, you got a headspace to have a ten thousandth for ultimate precision. I'm talking about just general stuff, like mm-hmm. the composition of a die. Like what is there the things that you probably know, but they make sense to know cold. So, you know, what what are the different types of presses that you have? Which type of press do you have? Do you have a cam over or do you have a hard stop? Uh, or, you know, one that stops prior to cam over. How do you set up your dies? Like what docking rings, you know, decapping stems. The composition of your brass and you know all the features of it i mean if you're new enough where those like if, if someone said you know headspace and you go mm, and you pause for even a second to understand what it means to have a rifle headspace or shoulder setback in relation to that headspace and it doesn't mean that they're, they're not the same thing um you should you owe it to yourself to find a book i personally would recommend the book abc's of reloading i know you can find it on amazon it's like 15 20 bucks I think there's two versions of it. One, at least from what I can tell, one of them is like tenth edition, and it, I read it when I first got into it. They have a lot of arcane photos and hand drawings of different components. It's done really well, though. It was written in like the '60s or '70s, 
but it does go through all the major components of reloading, reloading process, pressure, why you do certain things, what you stay away from. And it just gives you a really good baseline of, of underlying words and definitions that are good for you to know as you move forward in precision rifle reloading. And it's not that it's going to make you an amazing hand loader. It's just there to reinforce certain characteristics of knowledge, vocabulary. So you're all talking the same language. When, when you hear somebody speaking about something, you can clarify what they mean and not just assume you mean, you assume you know what they're talking about and come to find out you don't have a big problem. So that's part number one. Words matter in reloading. And if you say headspace and you mean shoulder bump, they're different. If you, you know, talk about cleaning primer pockets versus swaging primer pockets, also different. Like, uniforming them, also different. Like, those are the kind of things that you want to be careful of. As long as you have a handle on those, um, if you're past that point and you're more advanced and you already know all those terms and, and all the basics, um, that's where we're going to jump in. Just what we do and then go through our process. So why don't you touch it off with your, uh, your process from, let's do virgin brass all the way through the point where you're going to fire it, and then I'll do my virgin brass, then we're going to switch and do the same thing with fired brass. Okay, sounds good. Um, I like the fact that you gave people a recommendation on some literature because, I mean, the Internet can be a pretty crazy place with forums and all kinds of stuff that people have opinions on, and, and they try to communicate that they have some special mojo <laughs> and... <laughs> they may they may know something, but they might not share everything, and that's yeah. not because they're hiding something. It's just because they're not good at describing a process, and and if you don't know all the details, it could be unsafe. So yeah, yeah, caution you to take stuff off of forums and stuff like that yeah. without a reason, knowing the whole context. There's a reason there are books written on this subject and not like a forum post. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's because there's just too many details that can be left out that are actually important. Yep. So my virgin brass prep is pretty simple. I'm starting with Lapua brass these days. I'm taking it out of the box and I run a mandrel through it to make sure that the neck is uh, perfectly round and that um, there's no denser dings or whatever and and all the neck tension is consistent. I do put a little bit of lube on the inside of the neck or on the mandrel like every 10 or 20 pieces just to make sure there's no galling. And then I will trim and deburr and um, IDOD to burr on a Girard trimmer and then I will put in a vibratory bowl and tumble with some flits to clean up and get rid of any shavings and uh, apply just I feel like it applies a little bit of lubrication in the neck with the polishing media cool and that's uh, walnut media correct yeah it's funny I think I bought it on Amazon and I ordered walnut media it was literally called walnut media but it came in a bag said hazelnut Walnut media, <laughs> so <laughs> so I think it's hazelnut shells, but yeah, same concept. Yeah, harder shell. Yep. Corn cob versus walnut, they are different. So mm-hmm. yeah. corn cob tends to absorb things pretty well, but it's also very light. Um, Gentle walnut is more aggressive in a good way. For what we do, I really don't see the need for corn cob, but that's we'll get. I guess we'll get to that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I take it. And I, I do uh, one-piece flow for my reloading process. So I've got a Bald Eagle priming press. I've got a Prometheus. And I've got a Area 4190 press. And I basically set my reloading block in front of me. And um, while the powder is throwing, I will seat my primer into the case. And then I will drop the powder. And then I will press, drop the bullet in and press the bullet and put it back in the reloading tray. And I just keep doing that over and over again. 
Um, the only step I will add in there is that I do trim and point my bullets. We can talk about that a little bit if you want, or you can just leave it at that. I trim and let's, point my 105 hybrids. Yeah, let's do that it, maybe at the end, and we'll yep. circle back to that, because I think that's a, uh, a deviation away from you know the brass prep component. Yep, so that's pretty much my process. I mean, I do a couple, three, I do three steps to the brass before I use it, and then my process doesn't change from that point on, whether it's fired or not fired brass. Um, I, I just, you know, seat the primer, Drop the powder, seat the bullet, done. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Um, new brass for me, very similar. Out of the, I use Alpha a Dasher at the moment. I take that out of the box. It goes into a walnut tumbler for about 30 minutes. It's a rotary tumbler, not a vibratory. Uh, I can get about 500 pieces in there. I let that go for about 30 minutes using just, it's the dirty media. I clean it out with dryer sheets every once in a while. So I'll throw a couple in with the brass while it's tumbling. It pulls some of the dirt and grime out. And then I throw those away and put new ones in. Uh, that dust for me acts as a lubricant. So Chad mentioned he lubes his mandrel before he, or lubes his necks indoor the mandrel before he sizes or does anything to them or runs the mandrel. I use the media and the kind of the dust powder in there as my lubrication. Really, it's just a dry film type lubrication that's from the same type of stuff we already shoot. It's the carbon, the dust, the debris, and the dirt. You know that gets pulled out, which honestly is okay by me. The um, the necks are pretty fine, so when that comes out after it's brand new, I don't even touch it until it's had that done. I will then run it through a trimmer. I use the Henderson uh, trimmer at the moment. You push it in, twist it. It trims, chamfers, deburs. I'm not trimming that a lot. I'm just finding you know if I sample them all, there's only about two thousandths total length variation between all the pieces that I've measured so far. So I'll trim them all. To where I just take half to one thousandth off of the shortest piece. So I'm pulling between three thousandths to one thousandths on brand new just to get them all roughly uniformed. Mm-hmm. And the, it trims, chamfers, deburs um, all in one step. That comes out, it's now ready to load for virgin firing. Uh, for loading, I do very similar. I've moved over to a single piece or single piece workflow like Chad does mainly because it has caused some issues, which we'll get back to. So we're going to go into the to pitfalls, but I will uh, seat a primer, dump the powder, seat a bullet, mark the case, put it in my little tray in the next area, and then repeat. You said it has caused some issues, but I think you meant that you've seen issues by not doing one-piece flow. Yeah, meaning multi-piece, trying to cycle trying to all batch the powder, process. batch processing. Okay. Yeah, I've had more issues with batch processing than I have with single piece to this point. Okay. I've had yeah. one error in 2,000 pieces with single piece flow um, in the last month and a half. And I'm not going to put a number on the number of rounds <laughs> that I have asked. Oh, one was on done. train up day at AG Cup. I remember it specifically. Yeah, with, with multi-piece <laughs> flow, I can... I can easily add a decimal point uh, or three yeah. to uh, <laughs> I not have, three, but close. I have had it too. And honestly, I got rounds. a bullet stuck in my barrel one time because the primer, because I was using such little neck tension mm-hmm. that the primer actually forced the bullet up into the lands and just enough to get it stuck, but didn't pull out when I Oof. opened the chamber. So I left the bullet in there. Those are no fun. Yeah. It was Luckily, pretty easy to stop, pop back out. They stopped the next round from going in, which is good, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Lord forbid there's any powder in that case whatsoever. So we already got to one problem, pitfall. Yeah. We well, already we'll, crossed that off the list. <laughs> well, yeah, there's one. Um, but let's go to the next one. So you've taken all that virgin brass. You've now fired it. What do you yeah. do? 
Um, my first thing is I anneal it. Uh, I throw it in the hopper for the amp annealer, and then I turn that thing on and I let it roll. Now, this is assuming that I didn't shoot a muddy match. If it's a muddy match, I'll do like a, a tumble or um, ultrasonic or something to get the dirt off of the brass. But if it's, you know, shooting at K&M and the gravel and concrete, I'm just going to throw it in that tumbler. And the tumbler itself, you know, any dust or dirt or whatever that's in the cases kind of falls out as they're in the rotary there. Yeah. And it doesn't get too much all over my stuff. Um, so I'm uh, I'm happy doing that process. Then once, once it's been um, annealed, then I will apply lubrication and I do it. I think we might do it simpler. Maybe. I don't know. I use... Um, I use currently using a lanolin um, alcohol mixture, and I'm putting it like in all the brass in a tote, maybe a few hundred pieces. I'm spritzing it, and then I take my hands and I just roll it, roll it all over the pieces to make sure there's a uniform coat. And I'll wait like five or ten minutes for the alcohol to evaporate, and you got a nice thin coat over everything. I think lubrication is something that people overdo, and yeah, you can dent your your necks um, that way, but I think it's far worse to under lubricate than it is to over lubricate i mean you fire around with the dent in the neck it pops back out it's not a big deal but but if you're sizing cases that are not lubricated all the way down to the actual extractor groove then mm-hmm. your your die's not going to size all the way down and, and it's not going to bump the same every time so once my stuff's lubricated then i will put it through a die in my zero press and um then i will put it through a mandrel two separate operations and then I put it in uh, that dry tumbling media that I had before and clean all the lube off. I do take like acetone or alcohol or something and, and rub and sorry, not rub, but pour it over the blanks, the, um, the brass pieces to kind of get some of that lube off quickly. It just rinses it off there. And then I put it all once that's dried for a couple minutes, I'll put that all in the um, dry tumbler and tumble that brass out. My um, decapping is part of my sizing die. So that was already popped out in the process yeah so it's not a separate uh, operation okay and, and then pick up right where we left off with the uh, virgin piece. brass yep it's just uh, one piece flow seat the primer drop the powder seat the bullet carry on okay. cool uh mine's very similar as well i take dirty brass and i think there was a point in there which we'll i'm going to circle back to you but uh, i take all of my brass a i keep it in the same lot so after it's fired, I have batches or bins for the number of firings that that brass is on. I keep each firing, so virgin goes in one bin, once fired goes in another, second fired in another, etc. Take all the brass that I'm processing out, it goes into a rot- rotary uh, tumbler for 30 minutes to clean it and get some of the carbon off so I don't run a lot of carbon and dirt. And that's uh, dry. dry. Dry tumble. Yep, dry tumble. It's a rotary dry tumbler with walnut media. Run that for 30 minutes. Pull it out. It all gets lubed. Hornady one shot. I do it on a in a large flat bin, like an eight and a half by eleven, um, you know, twelve by nine type cookie sheet pan, where I spray it all, laying sideways. I'll shake the pan left to right so everything rolls around a little. Do it again. Shake it. Do it again. I'll do it three to four times per layer. Take all those. I'll move them around. Put them in another bin another class plastic clear bin so i transfer them out of my lube pan into a bin and i mix them around with my hands that just gets lube on my hands or my gloves uh, i use latex gloves a lot when i'm doing this um not just to keep the chemicals off my fingers i don't always remember but mainly because i want to get 
lube on my hands so that any excess lube gets uniformly or somewhat uniformly distributed. And, you know, I find that it, it just does seem to help catch dry spots because the more you handle it, the more mm-hmm. lube gets everywhere. It's a good thing. Then I'll keep doing that through the entire batch process. I usually do 500 to 1,000 pieces at a minimum uh, per, per seating or per day. Uh, that way I can get them all at the same level, uh, meaning all the steps are done for that brass, for that batch. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave part partial lots or partial processed brass somewhere else. Um, once it's like that, I can now size it. Sizing happens. I use a zero press as well. Uh, along with the SAC uh, dies, their custom dies. The what is? It? I forget the name of the exact die, but yeah, you'll know it. It's it's the SAC dies. I think it's called the one the the seating die, and, and then they have a custom resizing die. I use those. It decaps in one process. Um, it decaps and resizes in the same process. Now, what Chad said about the lube, that's why I actually used to use the upright method, where you put them in a loading block and spray them at different angles. But I found that a lot of the time I didn't have enough lube running down to the just forward of the pressure ring or just forward in the, the webbing area. The webbing area. Yeah. And it wasn't. It's not that it didn't. It just didn't do it consistently. And candidly, we can't afford not having it consistent. Well, at our, at our and level. I think people might think that we're talking about sizing the diameter of the web. That's not what I'm personally talking about. Maybe you are, but what I find is that that friction that builds up there in the webbing area. Re- reduces the motion of the press so you get inconsistent bump so i'm not concerned about the diameter so much as i am about how much i'm bumping each shoulder i agree it seems like it stops and while the press goes all the way up i'm not sure if it's just that the press flexes you know half a thousandth or a thousandth of an inch causing some differentials i think that the brass doesn't make it all the way up and the die the same and it basically just springs back because all that side friction it's possible i mean i really don't know what causes that um but i do know that with more lube i've had less issues Mm -hmm. i've had more consistent sizing and generally speaking long pieces pieces that don't size enough are under lubed Mm -hmm. and if i relube them generously and put them back in and it could be just as simple as the film build on the sides and around the cases and inside the die acts as an extra layer of compression to get it back to a nominal size Um, maybe but i'm not sure to be honest so So, you said you use the sack die i'm currently using red ink dies i'm not an advocate for either one i just wanted to point out that I also use the Reading uh, Competition Shell Holder Set, and if you don't know what that is, mm-hmm. I, I'm super happy with that. So it's basically a shell holder for 308 base. Um, you can get them for all different sizes, I'm guessing, for the different um, numerical sizes of the shell holders. But it, it has a every two thousandths you get a shell holder with every two thousandths height. So there's a nominal, and then there's a minus two, minus four, minus six, minus eight, minus ten, so on and so forth. I think you get five in the set. And then you can set it to where you bottom out your die, the face of your die, onto the um, face of the shell holder, and you get the exact same bump every time. And you can cam over your press or bottom out your press on the die in the shell holder. makes it really easy to set up from yeah. different different brass brands, different brass types, different calibers, all that stuff, because you can just jot down which shell holder you used. Then you bring that die down until it touches it, and you should be within you know a thousandth of the last time you bumped the brass. Yeah, and I'm assuming that if you set it up on the zero, so put the zero in, mm-hmm. spin it all the way down, and then from that point, if you find pieces that are seating, you know, that are bumping too little or too less, too much, you can just take those, set them aside, and literally just swap out your your mm-hmm. plus or minus and get more or less bump. Yeah, I found that it's always what I need unless I don't have enough lube. So that's always my first go-to is just make sure I my lube is uniform. Yep. Okay. So <coughs> once I have the brass sized and ready to go 
Um, I'm doing the same thing we did before. One piece workflow, uh, seat it, powder it, bullet, seat the bullet, and uh, seat a primer, seat a, put the powder in, seat a bullet, and it's off to the races. Mark the case. Go, fa- go hammer. Do you mark the case as part of your uh, one piece flow while you're dropping so, powder and stuff? I'm I'm 50-50 on this. I Me just too. did, and it, it's almost not... I almost can't do it without waiting too long, and it adds a step. I, I, in other words, I don't want to wait for powder. I can find other times where I'm just watching TV or we're doing prep for things before a match, You know, sitting in the hotel room watching a show. That's downtime that I can afford to use mindless activity to mark brass, whereas if I'm at home and I want to go to bed by midnight and I started at 10 o'clock, I may cut that out to save three seconds for a piece of brass so I don't wait on the... The, the scale isn't waiting on me. Yeah, it's the least critical thing in the process, so yeah. I agree. I kind of treat that as a case-by-case basis. I mean, I, I don't mind doing it as part of the process because you know it's less that you have to pick the piece of brass or the, the round up and do something with it. So technically, it is a cumulative, cumulatively less amount of time, but um, it makes that session just a touch longer usually. Yeah, so on that note, there's a tip that I've uh, come up with, which I'm still trying to act to employ it on my own perfectly, but I, it seems to be working well. Um, I created a little chart that's just essentially three or four different colors so I can know which firing my brass is on at mm, a glance. That's nice. All I did was took, you know, black, red, green, blue. Or I, I think I think that was the order. I forget. Basically, by the t- I think it was by the time you get to red, I think it was red was at the bottom. Yeah, it was black, blue, green, red. Um, red means anneal it. I, I anneal every three to four firings, generally. Mm-hmm. I might start doing that to every two, but at least I know how many times that brass has been fired. And by doing that, virgin brass gets black mark. You know, once fired brass gets a blue mark, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That way, if I'm done processing something, and I look at it, I go, ooh, I've got blue. I know that's been fired once. Or I really like that idea. Extra, um, two, I two do... Extra. I do something similar but different. So I use different color codes for different reloading be- uh, sessions. sessions. Yeah, so if I load for a match, this time it's going to be one color, the next time it's going to be a next color. So any leftover ammo, I can see what session it's from. And then if I need to do some testing or whatever or some training, I can just use one color at a time. I rarely change my charge weight, but you never know. Um, yeah. what could happen between different batches and or barrels like it came down to at the AG Cup I ended up having to use practice ammo for the shootoff yeah. which was leftover match ammo which shouldn't That's so wild shouldn't have been a big deal right and especially I was even more confident because like I said I had colors on all the stuff in this mix and match bin and I just picked 10 of the same color and I knew it was from the same loading session so I like that but I also like your idea a lot um I'm dealing with really large batch. We both are really large batches yep. of brass. So, um, if you're if you got two three thousand pieces of brass, it'll take you a long time to cycle through those colors. But I do like the fact that you know which uh, or how many firings are on that brass. That's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, didn't think about that. Yeah, the other thing I've been doing, which is kind of again side note, is you know everybody uses sharpie for the most part. I've also seen some people who use paint pens. Mm-hmm. And I tried those; they are a pain. I don't like it. It's really hard to get on there. Uh, also, it's not manipulable after the fact, so I, I, shot, I tried it. I have not employed it, but I have tried the base stamp. That was pretty cool. Like those pens and the ink, uh, putting that ink in the like the head stamp, mm-hmm. like in the engraving for the head stamp, it does somewhat come off. Then you just wipe it off, and you're left with a tiny amount of paint inside of there that just sort of colors it. it actually, honestly, does a pretty good job. 
of helping. Like, let's say you have a there's two black pieces, and then you just look at the head stamp, and you've got like red inside the letters. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's yours. So like, is that something somebody sells, or just a process you've seen? I've never heard of that. I know. I just started doing it. I've never oh. seen anybody. <laughs> So how do you apply it? How are you? Well, I started doing it with Sharpie at first, and I just wiped the Sharpie off right after. I put it on and immediately wipe it off. With what? With just a rag. It it wouldn't dry, so I would wipe it off, and it stays inside of the lettering. Hmm. Okay. So that that was one. It it is. Like, you just mark it and then swipe it across a rag, Mm -hmm. and it wipes most of it off. Um, But I tried it with the the enamel stuff, and that seems to work a little bit better. I'm but it also it takes a little longer my, to dry. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to try that against my bolt face at sixty thousand psi or whatever the heck it actually experiences on the bolt face. So I'm. I just tried it to see what it looked like, and I'm curious about it. Um, but where I was going with this is other. Col- excuse me, other color sharpies and trying other brand of sharpies. Mm-hmm. I have noticed there are some different colors and different manufacturers of sharpie-like products that actually do have some unique colors. So if you're struggling, to, if you always go to the match with black, red, or green. Um, and you want to find something unique, like maybe Where do come I go up here? north, south, right, eh, straight, straight, go left. Yeah, this is an exit. That one loops around, goes over. Yeah, we have, so speaking of navigation. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I slowed down and let yeah. us both take a look at this because oh, I think you're right. Yep, I think we hit, right. Nine, we hit nine Gs earlier on one turn. <laughs> um, fire pilots and that are listening would be impressed at the well, number I'd of Gs I'd be passed out at like four Gs. I think you were passed out because I was freaking out going, well, it's been a good ride. Yeah. Um, anywho, uh, just a point to say, different hey, look for, look for different markers if you want to try something else. And it makes it unique, easier to identify. That's the whole purpose of marking your brass is just to make it easier to collect and sort. I'm, I can't emphasize that if to, we're going to kind of transition into the pitfalls here. And my number one pitfall that I got stuck in early on was simply not having enough brass to accomplish what I want to do accomplish. And when I say that, I mean having multiple batches, like different lots of brass. In some manufacturers, it's not a huge deal. So depending on the level you're trying to uh, shoot to, if you shoot, you know, XYZ brass that's bulk, you know, or, you know, lower quality, lower cost, um, there are lot to lot differences. There are differences in case capacity and there's differences in wall thicknesses. Like all of those factors can play a part into how your rifle shoots. So if you have one that's say a 40 grain capacity, 40 water capacity, another one is a 41 or a 41 and a half, you know, individually they shoot great. You mix them together, you're going to notice that your SDs go up, your ESs go up, and it becomes a, a pretty bad scenario when, you know, eight out of 10 go exactly where you want, and then two of them are either really fast or really slow. And it's not because of any other part of your process other than the capacity, the internal capacity of the case. Um, So I started buying more brass, uh, and I know we've talked about it a lot, but I think maybe we can put some rough suggestions for people who are, you know, depending on what they're trying to do. If you're a recreational shooter who's not doing matches, yeah, 200... I would say 200 cases is a really, 200 to 250, 300 cases is a really good number. Um, if you can get 200 cases, you're probably good for a long time for a single barrel as a recreational shooter. You can always cycle it. You're going to go 50 to 100 rounds in a, in a practice session or just hanging out, poking holes in paper, and you can have the other 100 ready to go. Um, agree with that basic sure. statement? Yeah. Recreational, go, yeah. Recreational. If you're shooting, I mean, one I feel day, like we're recreational, but I don't. Well, what I mean, are we putting? Casual, in like super casually recreational, like somebody not, not, not shooting competitions, matches. exactly, not competition okay. level. 
at a one-day level now, let's say you're shooting local one-day matches or regional one-day matches, I think that number goes up fairly significantly to the 500 mark at a, at a minimum. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I say a minimum, I still think that's a pretty good number. If you shoot five one-day matches in a season or six one-day matches in a season, which is not a, not a huge amount but for local guys who are trying to compete within their region, that means that you need about, say, 30 to 50 rounds to test a load, zero it, break it in, uh, say break it in meaning after you've cleaned it or whatever you've done, you might use 50 rounds before a match to confirm everything is where you want it to be. You're going to go to the match. It'll be approximately 100 rounds. Post-match, I use 20 to 30 rounds for just testing and making sure the gun's good and breaking in it again, but you might have also shot 5 or 10 rounds on the zero board at the match. So you're somewhere between 150 and 180 rounds on one match. Assuming you're doing, you already know the load, you already know what charge you're going to see. Like all of the other stuff is sort of known variables. You're you're pushing 200 rounds already. Well, this is something that we will have to touch on in the future because I don't think most people that go to one day matches load more than 110 rounds to go to that match. Yeah, but they do load more than 110 rounds. They just don't load for it to go to that match with them. They they go think fifty lo- sixty like thirty forty fifty rounds like they'll go to the, the range before load no. twenty shells send it load I twenty think there's, send it and we're gonna talk about prep. I want to know about this. I, I'm just thinking I'm thinking out loud here. So let me okay. let me get through it. So so the mindset that we have is that we are not gonna show up to a match without testing everything. We want to know where our barrel is at in the clean cycle. We want to know that it has a good zero and nothing's changed. We want to know velocity. We want to be able to true up our data at distance before we show up to a match. So that's why you're talking about that 30 to 50 number, right? I mean, that that allows you to do that, accomplish that, correct? And then we shoot the match, 100 rounds, and then we shoot maybe some confirmation rounds to confirm zero at the end, call it 10 or 20 rounds, just so that we know we put our rifle away at the same state as when when we brought it. Yep. That's your 180-round number you're talking about. But I know from talking to people that they're like, oh, I got a match coming up this weekend. I'm, I got to load up 110 rounds. And they're loading up the rounds right before they go to the match, so you know they're not going to do the testing portion we just talked about. Yeah. And they're only loading 110 rounds because they're only planning on shooting a couple. Well, they might not even shoot zero. They might just show up, and those 10 rounds are extra. That's true. And so I, I think there's a different mindset for different people, but all we're kind of trying to say is that this is, and I totally agree with you, like I would never go to a match without loading, and my number is 150 to 160 rounds for a one-day match. I'm going to load up that many. And that's how I end up with those extra rounds we talked about earlier. I, I might not shoot 10 or 20 rounds, and those rounds yeah. collect up, and those become my training rounds. Yeah. Um, so that's for one-day number. Yeah, and the reason I'm going to back up a little and also go into the Let's play the other devil's advocate scenario. This is why we say it's a trap. If you have, let's say you buy 200 pieces of brass for as a one-day shooter, you load 110. You've now shot those, say 100. You have 10 pieces that are unfired. You're just gonna you're gonna leave those for the next match or break in or whatever. Mm-hmm. Fall in your you, barrel. You now have another hundred that have never been fired. A hundred that have been fired. You put them in a bin. You load the next hundred. You shoot some of those, but you have 10 that were left over. You keep those, and you have maybe 20 pieces left over. Left over, But you, uh, uh, whatever, we're just going to load them all. So now we have 100, and, 100 or so pieces of, uh, you loaded 90 for the match or 100 for the match to get to the total you needed. Because you only had 90 left, right? 
you loaded 110 out of 200, you had 90 left, you load all of them, you go to the next match with 100, you have 15 left over. At some point, it's really easy to have some of them cycle, auto-cycle. As soon as you start going, say, partials, and you start dropping, let's say your first match you fire, uh, or second match, you've, lose, you've lost 10% at a minimum. I, I plan on 20% per match. I wanna I'm going to lose two pieces for every eight that I capture. Or out of 10 rounds, I'm going to lose two pieces. So that means I'm going to lose 20 pieces of brass per match. This varies. I, there's matches where you get all of it back. And there's others where you just don't. So two pieces is a very safety is a safety based number. But from 200, you're down to, you know, between 180 and 160, from just those two matches. Mm -hmm. Now you have one match and you don't have enough to cycle the next match. So you have to shoot that, process it. You can't even make it to the third match without having mixed firing ammo. Yeah. And then you go to the fourth match and you've already lost some and you can't. Now you're again mixed firing. So it, it creates some other problems with having you know, mixed hardness of necks. And that's what we're kind of getting at here. Even though it's from the same lot, you get a mixed hardness. So having an ample size that can stay in a consistent pattern is to your advantage. Doesn't mean you have to, but 500 is my number for a one-day shooter. If you're a national-level shooter, it's, it's literally a minimum of double that because it's two days plus any train-up. So I think, it, for me, the number is closer to 1,500 to 2,000 to get through a season with a, shooting a lot of matches. For the average shooter, if they're shooting three or four one days, uh, and then you know two to three two days, I think the number is closer to a thousand. Mm -hmm. I think you can hang at a thousand, and you won't have a huge issue. So that would be my my recommendation: a thousand pieces if you're shooting a lot of two days, because it, again, keeping it all in the same process, without running into these constraints where you don't have brass to shoot that's all in the same firing. I agree, hundred um, percent. I like to have more. More is better. Yeah, all of the <laughs> same lot because it does help. There's some brands that don't have that. It's uh, very easy to keep consistent lot-to-lot -to -lot tolerances, so they shoot very consistently together. But mm -hmm. again, I personally need to eliminate all of that. We're not at the point where um, we can afford to give any amount of leeway. You know, Hollis was won by one shot. Yeah. One shot out of Yeah, but at the same token, we're not shooting, we're not bench rest shooters, so. No. Um, but we do like our stuff to be very consistent and predictable. Um, we're not doing anything that we feel is excessive or tries to gain us a, a, a competitive edge for, you know, do an hour worth of work to gain and or reduce your group size by ten thousandths or twenty thousandths. I mean, that's not <laughs> yeah, what we're trying to do not here. At all. We're, we're running f forgiving cal calibers with the best bullets on the planet and, you know, the best gunpowder. And we feel like that gives us a little bit more forgiveness, you know, so. Yeah. So that said, we've we talked about brass quantity, brass prep. Um, another pitfall: shoulder bump and lube. This is something I know we've talked. We did in the setup part. We talked about lube and how important it is to shoulder bump. But I think lube, in general, but also the process that you mentioned, cleaning the lube off. I don't know if I mentioned that in my process. After it's lubed, before it's sized, I don't think I did. It goes back into the tumbler for 30 minutes mm -hmm. so I can get that lube off You have the, to get off the, the lube brass. off, folks. It is, it is very critical. And I know, look, you can't... Can you shoot brass with lube on it? Sure. 100%. Can you also shoot brass that will make your bolt lift sticky intermittently and not seem like it's piercing primers and acting really funny and potentially building up your chamber with lube, dust, dirt, grime, getting in your magazines, touching your bullets, you know, getting in your barrel... 
if you have a suppressor and there's enough buildup and it blows back, I mean, does that hit your bolt face? Probably. Does it get in your firing pin hold? I can attest 100% it will if you have a suppressor or back pressure in there. Lube oil gets into your firing pin assembly, and I've found just dry pin, and I found a bunch of lube accumulated back in the firing pin hole. I'm like, this is weird, and it was the only way it could have gotten there was from either the one drop I put at the heel of the bolt or from stuff that had accumulated over um, some rounds that I had fired about 50 rounds worth of lubed brass and bullets. And I'm like, that's that's the only way I can imagine this getting here. Hmm. So, Yeah, so, I, and I know people are listening and they're like, oh, I wiped the lube off of my cases because I don't want Mm-mm. to put them in a tumbler or a wet, wet tumbler or a, a dry vibe. You can't get it all off, folks. You can't, and it builds up in your chamber and then it reduces the friction that the case needs to number one seal but number two a lot of that force is not is not just the bolt face that's containing it it's the the walls of the the case against the chamber and as soon as you start to change that friction that surface friction then more of that force goes into the bolt face and that's why you get heavy bolt lift when you have um, either a chamber wall that's too polished or you have lubrication in there and it's not it's not a good scenario so Get all that lubrication off, please. That's what you need to do. Yeah, it's it's more. And I, I, you, this is another one that related to chamber wall. Sharpie on the body of your, your uh, brass. Yeah, don't do it. Um, and, you know, the brass manufacturers are going to thank us for saying this. The, the bolt uh, and action manufacturers as well. Um, I'm sure they feel a ton of calls by people saying, oh, my brass sees pressure early. Or my, you know, my I'm piercing firing, <laughs> I'm piercing primers and my firing pin's all messed up. Like these, I, I feel so bad for these companies because there's so many ways that this can go wrong. And they're all very, very subtle and, and they're hard to, they're hard to track down if you're on the phone with somebody. So yeah. And it, you, it, honestly, it requires a lot of assumptions about yeah. let's, if you assume that it is call it the action or the brass. It requires you to put 99% of the faith in the person on the other end of the phone mm-hmm. that they're doing the things that they're telling you they're doing. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there's there's a lot of ways where, you know, you cut some corners and maybe you didn't get the lube off of that. You put it in for five minutes or you used Imperial Dye Wax, which I've used, and it's very difficult to get off. So without the ability to get all of that off, uh, at least in an experiment that I ran personally, if you put fired cases that are lubed in a in a gun and you you bump them too much, let's say they're five six thousandths, you bump them too much, um, you'll get a lot of primer flow versus something that's bumped less with lube, and you'll get heavy bolt lift if there's any amount of lube or very nominal amounts of lube, and you'll get just a perfect little ding lift up, and there's no lube, and you have it heads uh, bumped properly. Yep, so I agree. On that last part, let's talk about shoulder bump. I have gone from everything from zero or approximately zero, zero minus, let's mm-hmm. call it that, to five thousandths over the course of my 10 years reloading and three years in competition. Um, it's, I've settled on two to three thousandths. Yeah, that works. And I know that's I'm what at. the recommendation is. So, but I actually would err more towards three than I would to two. Mm-hmm. But there's some trade offs that happen. As you go closer to zero, you run the potential for a very difficult chamber. Like when you close the bolt, you'll you'll sometimes feel that it's ooh that one felt a little stiff on close. Um, my thought on that is again not all brass sizes back exactly to the same spec. I know what we say, but it doesn't always work that way. If you fire cases from the same barrel, 
then you're testing charges and you do a ladder test and you have a couple that are fired at the upper end and you have a couple that are fired at the lower end, the webbing of that case expands differently. That means that when you resize it, it's likely going to resize ever so slightly differently as well. And you may end up with a piece of brass that either, you know, after sizing it a couple times or you've, you had to check your first piece of brass that you're using to set a die or a couple of them, really. I mean, you might go through 10, 20 pieces and they're close and you're like, you keep putting them in a pile. Those get really work hardened mm-hmm. and maybe they're really difficult to size. Those pieces, A, set them aside because until you can anneal them, they're, they're more likely than not going to be very hard relative to, say, a virgin case. They will be different. Um, however, if you, you know, anneal them or you wait for them to be resized or just use them as practice fodder, making sure that you have uh, three thousandths or so bump means that when you're chambering the case, if you have a couple that are a little on the long side, meaning they're not bumped enough, you might not have that really difficult to close round, which can make it, uh, let's just say, it scares the hell out of me on the line when I go, ooh, why is this not closing? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, I know what it should feel like, and it doesn't feel that way. I get nervous. Well, I know you you eject those rounds. Yeah. Um, well, before I get to that point, um, okay. it also allows any odd stuff building up in your chamber to give you a little bit of buffer before that causes a problem, right? You might have a, yeah. a round that's maybe sized a little bit long, bumped a little bit short, sized long, however you want to say it. Um, and that's one thing. But you also, I see a lot of people with smoky necks. So I don't know if that's... Um, because of their neck diameter dimension or the the fact that people aren't nailing their brass every firing so it's not expanding and sealing well around the neck or there could be five other reasons lubrication still there which causes a, a, a basically a pathway for the gases to wick back down the side of the case I mean you've seen that before yeah. right so there's a bunch of ways that gases can get around your neck between the neck and the chamber and then it starts to build up there on the shoulder and neck region and then you could have some cases that if you're not bumping far enough that you can't chamber um but yeah i to to that other point um if there is a case that feels that way i usually eject it because most times it it acts slightly different and i just don't want to have it happen i'll rather grab a a round out of my um, two round holder and finish the stage then send one that's kind of weird for whatever reason it could have been a um a burr on the case mouth or, or something that caused it to chamber a little bit differently. So if I feel that, I'm going to I'm gonna take it out of the equation and yeah. just shoot, use it for fouling or something like that. That makes sense. It happens once in a while. Yeah, I had, I had two or three. At a, the last couple matches, I've had maybe one or two or three per match that feel a little different. I've fired them. It depends on the stage. I don't think I've ever extracted one yet, but more. <laughs> I remember one that I wanted to extract, but then I, it was at Punisher... And I had one stuck in the chamber. Like, I don't want to extract it because I don't want to get this one stuck too. And oh boy, yeah. So that was a couple of years ago. But um, well, let's talk about some other pitfalls. And yeah. this is one that I've experienced. I don't know if you have, but we both do dry tumbling or dry vibing. Uh, yes. Neither one of us do wet. And I don't know if you ever did wet. I did wet once, okay. and I quit immediately. It's a pain there in the two, butt. There are two reasons. Yeah, the pain <laughs> in the ass. And I'm, look, this is one where I'm willing. Put the cha-ching on there, because I am full well willing to make that to go. That is, It is a pain in the ass. <laughs> the drying portion of it is stupid and ludicrous. The pins themselves, you get enough to make it dangerous, but where you can overfill with cases, and you can't actually put that much in there. It needs way more pins than you think. It's super heavy. It's really messy. 
I just can't say enough negative things about it. It's the worst part about reloading, if and I never want to do it again if I don't have to. So there's two other things other than it not being fun. Um, Peens the necks. Number one, you can peen the necks. And mouths. Neck mouths. Yes, the case mouth. So mm-hmm. if you don't understand what that means, um, you're either not wet tumbling or, um, I don't know. Actually, uh, here's an easy <laughs> test. If you want to see what it looks like, take a case put it right against a piece of concrete and hit it with a hammer right on the mouth. <laughs> but rolling, just, while you're rolling it. <laughs> while you're rolling. Yeah, it just literally flattens out. And if you were to look at it from a cross section, the mouth would look like a widened, flanged out mouth, like right at the lip. The lip is now, instead of being uniform and camfered, it's like a T-shape or a wedge shape, and it's wide. No, I think it's the other way around. I think it rolls it in, and then when you put the bullet in, then that burr comes to the outside. But either way, either way, the, it makes edge, it look goofy. The edge of the mouth is disturbed. We're gonna say because, and that happens from from over over tumbling. So you really only need like fifteen minutes, and some people will do it for an hour, two hours, three hours. Um, and then the other way it can happen is by not having enough stainless media in there. If you buy one of those packs, the two and a half pound packs, and you put three hundred rounds in your tumbler because it'll fit, it'll it'll fit. Uh, ask oh, me how go. I know. And then you tumble it. It's basically brass on brass and. The pins create some type of a, a, a buffering cushion between the brass. If you don't have enough pins, you need um, you need to add some because you'll get peening at a, a small level even at 15 minutes. So I just don't want to risk damaging my brass, number one. And then number two, um, and these two are to- totally independent of the fact that the whole thing is a pain in the ass uh, with the, the drying process you're talking about. But um, I don't like my inside of my necks to be totally devoid of carbon. Yeah, uh, me either mainly because I feel that it is already dry loop, right? Yeah, the carbon is a natural lubricant. Yeah, and if you're going to graphite your necks, why go through the extra process of graphiting your necks if you already have some amount of carbon buildup that's there? Yeah, and all we're really trying to do is to create some type of a barrier between the brass and then the copper jacket on the bullet. So I like to leave a little bit of that carbon in there. Do I like it to be scaly and, and powdery? No, but... You're going to put, if you put it in a dry vibe or a dry tumble 15 minutes, it's going to have some amount of carbon inside the case, and that's not a bad thing. I don't give a crap about um, my primer pockets either, so I'm not really worried about that. One thing we didn't mention is we're both using dry tumble media, but it's part of my one-piece flow when I go around and load, um, seat my primer, drop my powder, uh, seat my bullet, is before I seat my primer, I look down through the flash hole and make sure there's not a piece of media in there and maybe one out of every hundred or one out of every 200 will have a little piece in there do i think it's going to cost me uh, an sd issue or some type of ignition issue i honestly don't think so because the flash of a primer going off is pretty pretty intense mm-hmm. i mean you can mm-hmm. ask you can ask somebody that we know uh, who has had a primer go off with a hand priming tool and blow up in their face it's not pleasant so I really feel like it would push whatever's in there out, and you'd still get pretty good ignition, but I really don't want to yeah. mess with that. So I take a little Allen wrench. I have it on the side of my uh, workbench there, and I just pop out that little piece if there is one. And like I said, one out of every 100 or 200 has one. Yeah. I do something similar. I just do it in kind of bulk I'll, as I'm waiting for a – if I charge a case, if I get three or four extra seconds, I grab five, ten cases, and they generally orient themselves kind of case mm-hmm. down by weight or case head down. Just look at them, clean, 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 cool, and I put them in the bucket I'm working from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, similar, then I'll poke them out. Or just set them aside and poke them out later. 
Yeah, so what are some other pitfalls you've seen? Or or maybe they're not necessarily pitfalls, but they're things that are reasons that you prioritize the way that your process is today. Because I think both of our processes have evolved and whittled down to what we think are the key the key areas for performance for what we care about. Like I said, we're not bench-rest shooters. We're, we're trying to have consistent ammo that's really good. Yes. High so quantities. I would argue one of the things, and this is, again, we are shooting and loading for PRS. That's not a derogatory term. I, if you're a bench rest shooter or you're an F-class shooter, I've seen dozens. If I've seen dozens, I've seen hundreds of videos with every guy and their brother saying, you have to load with blankety-blank neck tension or you've got to test neck tension and set your mandrels and size to this and do to that and that'll watch you. You can decrease your group size to this. Or we don't. I don't even care about that. I just want to make sure that I cannot move a bullet under recoil. I cannot move a bullet by dropping a magazine i can not move when i say move a bullet i don't mean i mean seating it deeper inadvertently once i or set by the chambering. bullet or by chambering yep. or by unchambering or by dropping a mag or by just simply traveling across the country with my ammo in a vibrating car or <laughs> worst case in it like when you're flying and that <laughs> thing gets handled woo, like worse than fedex mm-hmm. so if it drops and the weight of it the mass of itself is like a kinetic bullet puller you just drop the bullet drop the ammo and it stops hard is it going to seat your bullets deeper? I don't want to find out the hard way that half of my rounds are 10, 20 thousandths deeper. I don't think seating depth is super, super critical for what we do beyond a certain, there are certain windows where I do think it could play a factor. If you're up against the lands or close to it, like you're 20 thousandths off, let's come into that. But this the neck tension we, component, before just we leave say, that, the yeah. neck tension component is to me minimum of two, maximum of about four. Yep, I agree, 100%. And I am leaning more towards three to four. I prep the necks so that they have three thousandths now. I'm about to move to four thousandths. Uh, you know, technically why? This is more theoretical. I don't have any real empirical evidence of this. I have a lot more live round, like live fire rounds testing it back and forth, but it's not scientific in the sense that other than shooting 100 to 200 rounds of each type, in the same state, it's really difficult to make any conclusions about long-term benefits of shooting, say, four thousandths versus three versus two versus one. However, at three to four thousandths, it seems that the plastic deformation, so there's two types of deformation of, of materials, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you're the engineer, so you can correct me and jump in whenever there's a mistake. Elastic deformation means that a material will, say, move and if you remove the force, it comes back to its original state. Yep. There's a deformation that occurs going out, and it can come back to the original state or shape. Plastic deformation is the other mode. And once you hit a certain amount of strain, the material will go out, and it is not is no longer able to return to the original size. Mm-hmm. And it then stays at some amount. And there's still a small amount of give, but it'll stay at not the original size. And in my experience, that transition is somewhere between two to three thousandths plastic to go if you're above three thousandths and you have like say four thousandths smaller and you shove a bullet in there they're four thousandths it's plastic at that point and you've hmm. moved the brass to where when you unseat it you have a different diameter than when Man, you started. i'd like to see a study on that but i don't i agree there's a threshold i just would think it would be higher than that um well, but spring back spring back on brass is generally one about a thousandth, give or take, on okay. diameter. Yeah, that makes so sense. So I'm using that reference as if it springs back about a thousandth, then that essentially constrains it. In my mind, it constrains that window of somewhere between one and two thousandths above that. It's an interesting topic for me. I wonder if we could yeah, study I'd, it. But I'd like to know. But yeah. there's reasons why, and, and I'll, I'll let Chad answer a little bit about it. And then I want to, dude, I want to get 
I want to talk a little bit more about it and mm-hmm. why I'm not as concerned and why I really yeah. am concerned at the same time. Well, the only thing I'll add to it is that I have tested one thousandths, two thousandths, three thousandths, and four thousandths. Did it on paper to see if it, it messed with my groups or my SDs. And what I personally noticed, and like you said, you'd have to do hundreds and hundreds of rounds, in my opinion, to, to draw any actual conclusions. But the two times that I did it, I saw my velocity increase um, as I got, uh, as I approached two and a half thousandths, I did in half thousandths increments with the uh, mandrels. And so for me, that meant that I was getting, and I, my SDs went down um, along the way. So whether it was the surface uh, or the internal surface of the neck that was more consistent on that batch or, you know, something else could have been disturbing the data and, and leading me down this path. But in my mind, there's a certain amount of neck tension that, um, allows that bullet to have a consistent hold on it and as it's holding for longer it could be a little bit higher pressure and maybe that's why i saw the velocities come up just a touch and then once i got to two and a half thousandths uh, everything above that was the same and i didn't go above four so i can't speak to that and so in my mind if our primary objective is to hold the bullet in the case and not let it move around we know that anything thou or less in my opinion is unacceptable for the field type environment that we're doing so I basically ruled that out, moved myself up to that three number, which was where it started to stabilize for SDs and, and velocity, and uh, I just hung out there. Now, like yeah. I said, I only did two tests, and they they correlated good enough for me, so that's just what I do, three thousands. Yeah, and I think there's an important point there, which is also in this vein. If you say, oh, yeah, three thousands works really well, or two thousands works really well, um, there's something called stacking tolerances, and there's also variables that happen. Not every piece of brass is exactly the same. Not every press that you make is exactly the same. Meaning when you stroke the handle and you resize it, you're not guaranteed to get the exact same result. So therefore, if you're right on some ragged limit of, hey, 2,000 shot really good, but you get into a few pieces where the neck walls are a little bit thinner and they apply less force, maybe it's more like a 1,000th. And then you get to a few that are a little thicker and it's acts it sizes it down even more and it's more like two to three thousands that's the type of of area we're trying to avoid so i want to be up again away from that sort of let's say light threshold where i have a round or two that are too light and moving into the two minimum of two i check all of them and i'm trying to move towards a, a three thousandths number at a minimum and i probably going to test four just to see if i can make it work well, well we're talking about a number called we're calling it neck tension it's but we're actually not. measuring a secondary um, variable that we're, and it's because it's the only thing that we can control, which is the um, the diameter, right? Correct. So, a neck tension of one or two, let's call it two thousandths, with two different brass manufacturers that have a different wall thickness is going to have quote unquote a different neck tension. Yes. So, so rather than really saying hard that, it's say. the, the amount you're sizing relative to a loaded round yep. is a bit for the same type of brass. If you measure the bullet, it's two forty three and a six millimeter. You measure a loaded round and it's say 270. Um, then you load a different type of brass and it's 272. They could have the same ID when you in the hole you're inserting it in. It just depends on the wall thickness. So you have to measure your, you know, your pre your round, your pre-size, post-size, or pre-seat, post-seat dimension to figure out how much change there is. And that approximately tells you how much change you're having mm-hmm. you know, as you seat a bullet. Mm-hmm. That's the way I use it. Um, I would prefer to have four, three to four thousandths if I had my choice based on all the things I've seen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard. You have to find the right bushing. It changes a little, lot to lot. So having a couple of bushings, you know, 
2000s one way and 2000s the other from whatever you want is not a bad investment. They're like 20, 30 bucks each. For what we're doing, it's not a bad idea. Um, especially as you size them more, if the neck walls get thinner as you size them and you keep working them and working them and they are getting a little bit thinner, you're going to need to change your bushing shots. You're going to need to go down in your bushings. So to keep the same amount of, um, you know, quote, interference fit. So that's another one. Um, I, now, that, all that being said, again, I can't emphasize this enough. I'm not doing this for precision. I actually posted something where I did like a one thousandths differential between neck tension, if you will, uh, the mandrel diameters that I ran. There's no... Statistically, it would be impossible to say that those are any different. They're both perfectly round. They're the same size within three thousandths of an inch. They were 10-shot groups at... I think one was like a 0.52 or 0.502, something like that. It was like 0.504 or 0.506 or 0.51. So close that it really doesn't matter. I'm not choosing a, a load or ignoring something or starting with something different just because of a couple of groups. It's not how I roll. It's It needs to be a lot of rounds in order for me to see a meaningful difference. And a meaningful difference is has got to be like a full standard deviation smaller than what I would normally see. And... And if it's a full standard deviation, I don't want to go into the stats of it. It has to be at least 10 groups mm-hmm. for me to feel like it's a, okay, this is a meaningful and almost impossible scenario to recreate without there being something else different. So all that said, um, the more we talk about this, the more I feel like I don't know. <laughs> and I don't, and number one, and I do, number two, I don't care. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> it doesn't and that's matter. kind of what I was going to drive back to. Again, we're not shooting bench rest. They have their own standards and litmus test, and they have their own beliefs in how to put around in a really small group, and they do it really well. You know, I'm not sure how much of it is due to the ammo, the seating depth, the neck tension. And same thing with F-Class. I've watched those guys do videos shooting tiny little knots, and then this is what happens when you change something by seating depth, by blankety-blank amount. Three thousand. Yeah. I, I struggle with that, knowing how much group sizes change, changing nothing. But that said, I mean, it could be real. But the, the point is, we as PRS shooters, our targets are based on a zero-one principle. Hit it or don't. And there's enough error on most of the targets that this construct of a .25 quarter MOA gun, uh, it really is unnecessary. You need to be capable of putting all of your rounds in a three-quarter inch dot to hang at the pro level, a one-inch dot to, to one-and-a-quarter inch dot to hang at a one-day level. That's about it. If you can do that, consistently day in day out with your rifle you have all the precision you'll need anything you gain above and beyond that is just extra benefit to have more certainty when you're hitting a different plate on point a or point b that it's not the rifle it's not an errant round it's something to do with you the more error you have in your group size the more you have to weight that into your decision when you start to say oh i hit the right edge well was that within your group size Mm -hmm. if not okay leave it alone yeah, there's a lot of minute um, decision <laughs> points along the way that will just help us make a, a decision on whether we will do something about that or not. But for the most part, you're better off just chalking it up to your group size. Yeah. Um, another topic, pitfall. And when we say pitfalls, we mean don't get wrapped in, wrapped around the axle, chasing your tail, trying to change things. SDs. I'll just gonna breeze through these ones really quickly because honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about about them other than don't get caught in this trap. Chasing an SD, chasing a group size, or chasing you know an ES. 
group size seems to be predicated in my experience on primarily the bullet and barrel. If you have a good barrel and you have a decent bullet, it's going to group what it'll group. And mm-hmm. it'll group to the skill level that you're capable of grouping it. If you're uncertain that it's the gun, load 20 or 30 rounds and have you and somebody who is a much better shooter than you shoot side by side with the same gun and you shoot their known hammer while and vice versa and you go back and forth, five groups and keep rotating back and forth, back and forth. If you see that the group sizes that you're shooting with your ammo and the other person is shooting with your ammo and gun are the same, then you're probably at the limit of what that bullet barrel combo can do. Mm-hmm. Try a different bullet. Try a different barrel. If if it's above some threshold that you you deem completely unacceptable. If it's within the bounds, try another bullet, try another barrel if you want to, but otherwise just focus on the stuff that matters, build better positions, get smarter. Um, SDs and ESs. They're notoriously finicky. We're measuring them through other devices, lab radars, magneto speeds, uh, shot markers. And most people measure with sample sizes that are way too small. Way too small. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You With enough data points, you'll see that the average comes in. As Generally speaking, your SD will only get smaller and approach the real average. Uh, and if you want to get any, just a shout out quick, if anybody wants to learn about all of these things, we're talking about statistics of reloading, statistics of groups and rifle shooting, I implore you absolutely you need to go check out Applied Ballistics website. Um, we actually, they just put up a new, uh, okay. a new academy. Yeah. It's called thescienceofaccuracy.com. Thescienceofaccuracy.com is a podcast site and a learning site that has a lot of white papers and technical articles. There's uh, going to be more coming as well where you can listen to all of the discussions about these topics, how much they matter, where do they matter, what should you do about them, and you'll, you'll, especially the book series, if you read the, the first book or even the second book, you'll understand very quickly that you know if you have a group, two groups both print one inch, for instance, one of them has nine bullets through a single hole. And I don't mean like they're all clover-leafed. I mean a single hole, and then one is one inch high and left. And it's just, but the, the extreme spread is one inch. Okay, there's gun A. Gun B shoots a one-inch circle, and all of the impacts are completely perfectly distributed around that circle covering the entire dot no bullets are touching each other but they're all inside over at one inch which gun would you rather own sorry. a or b yeah you probably you might not have heard it. He <laughs> i was distracted i'm he sorry was checking, he was checking the cops um yeah, answer is quite simply b uh or the rifle a rather B is the one that shoots distributed around one inch. It's all over in that one inch. A is one that puts 90% of its shots through a single hole. Oh, yeah. And then one, it's, you know, quote, a flyer away from the point of aim by the opposite side of the paper. I would rather have B because I just know I can a. put 90 or A because I yep. can put 90% of the shots in a laser beam. And if I have one hit high left or, you know, wherever, if it's consistent, yeah, well, so be it. Like, it's a 90% gun, but 90% of the time, it'll work 100% of the time. I think Matt Outline, <laughs> I shot with him in Texas, and he was shooting that Savage Elite whatever. Yeah. The MDT stock and Savage. And he's like, my first round is always like an inch and a half high. <laughs> and so, so he was aiming under the target for the first round, and then he would come back up to his, you know, point of aim based on his data for the second round. And he was just hammering, and, and it was consistent. I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. But um, obviously, he's a good enough shooter to know. Um, yeah, that that's what what it was doing. <laughs> it was so funny. He's like, man, I can't I can't judge that first shot. I, I just got to do this. And then he would 
most most likely he was hitting first round impacts and then yeah. changing. It's pretty cool. Well, that's that's a really good point. Uh, only to know that if you know your rifle and you know your gear, with enough times you can at least become aware and you can make a plan to correct for it. Even though if you were to add all those shots together, he'd say, "Yeah, it's a two inch gun." No, 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 no. It's really a, it's a half inch gun with a fowler. Mm-hmm. With the <laughs> so fire, yeah. <laughs> just take the fowler shot and just dope it on the target, and then proceed with plan as as expected. Um, ESs, they're basically useless. We've got to just put that out there. It only grows. You're only going to get worse. So again, if you want to check out stats and understand how to use the the math of of science on ballistics to your advantage, go check out thescienceofaccuracy.com. It is worth it. There's a lot of cool discussions. Chad and I have been. You got we've been on there a couple times now. Mm-hmm. And um, we've done some podcasts there talking about matches and, and full, cool, fun stuff. Uh, we put a lot into it, and it's, it's turning out to be a pretty cool tool. So uh, there's, there's that. Uh, so getting back to ES is not really that useful. It only grows. It can only ever get bigger. The two shots you fired are, say, 100 feet a second different for whatever reason, and the next ones are all the same number, exactly the same, for the same reason the group sizes are like that. The distribution of those groups actually is almost a perfect rifle for 99 or even 1,000 shots, but you have an ES of 100. Mm-hmm. It'll never get smaller. Using SD, on the other hand, as you shoot more shots, it becomes more and more precise. For yeah, the round I, don't, round. I don't put a lot of stake in it in nope, um, SDs or ESs. And, because I, normally I'll show up to a match and I don't have any control over that anyway by that no, time. No, you so. don't. You load your ammo, you load your bullets. It's done. ESD What's is going to be Dad. what it's going to be. <laughs> What's ESD, done is done, Dad. It's going to be what it's going to be. And I just check it for there velocity. There is variation there, too. Yep. Yeah, there's variation about your SD that's going to happen as well. But the average velocity, on the other hand, does tend to trend to the right number fairly quickly. You know, in 10, 5 to 12, 5 to 20 shots, Somewhere in there, higher is better, but usually 5 to 10 shots. You have a pretty good baseline. I prefer 10 to give you a good number. And there's actually a reason why I've chose 10 rounds for almost everything that I do now. We shoot 10 rounds in matches. Every stage is generally, plus or minus, a 10-round stage. Mm -hmm. So if I'm testing all of my loads, all of my stats, all of my my gear when I'm doing a drill, if I'm using a 10-round style drill in some way putting 10 rounds into a similar area to use all of those impacts or criteria as a measurement tool i can at least put that in context to an average stage or an average target and go all right so if i had to shoot a 500 yard target my groups are half inch for 10 shots if i'm 500 yards on a 12 inch plate i should be good Yep. It's pro- it's not me. If if I miss, it's going to be something else other than the rifle. It's on me. It's on the wind. Yeah, plus if you log in all those shots in 10-round strings, you, you know what to expect over the course of a 10-round stage. So yep. if you see any correlations to your first round being different, whether it's point of impact or velocity versus your last round, um, it's very – and it starts to create a pattern, then you can do something about it. Like we were talking with Matt's yep. rifle or, or we've seen rifles that have the first round be a different velocity – um, in cold bore mm-hmm. situations and other situations, so I mean, it's just more—it's more realistic to do a ten-round, ten-round yeah. group. So, so all that this is—we're getting a little bit away from you know, reloading, hand-loading in one sense. But th- the point of this is simply when you're making decisions with hand loads in general, and making a decision as to what components, what process, what seating depth, uh, and that's the last thing I want to touch on before we, we break for this one. 
use larger sample sizes. Do what you can to use. If your components are the limiting factor, so be it. But when you can afford to do so, you owe it to yourself to do larger sample sizes. So simply so you can make a better, a better educated guess as to is this the right path or the not the right path. And they have to be substantially different for you to know that there's a real difference. So the more rounds, the more accurately you can say they are, or confidently you can say they are different. So that said, uh, let's talk briefly about seating depth, and I think that hammers almost everything that we'll need to for reloading. Yeah, we can revisit, I'm sure, based on... Because we'll have a reloading, or a load development as well. Yeah, I'm sure based on this episode, if you guys are listening, there's going to be a ton of questions. This is one of those topics where people feel like their time is well spent on certain aspects, and and they're going to try to convince us, um, or at least bring up, hey, what about this? And we can touch on those topics. Yep. Um, as far as seating depth goes, um, I think we've all at this point seen the um, Precision Rifle blog, I think it was, the study that... No, oh yeah, they did, they wrote about it, but it yeah, was Short it was, Action Customs. It was in conjunction, yes, yep. with Mark Gordon from Short Action Customs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was his it was his brainchild to do this study, but I think that Precision Rifle blog was the one that documented it for him. I believe you're right. Yeah, something along those lines. There's three different series um, where they talk about this. And the data leads to the conclusion that somewhere in the range of 60 to 80 thousandths jump is where most bullets have the most, the the highest percentage of, uh, in the smallest group size. So basically... The least amount of vertical at distance. The least amount of vertical at distance across the largest span of... Um, seating depth. Seating depth. Yep. Because if you think about it, your throat is constantly eroding. So that was kind of, I think, the... <clears throat> I think that was the reason he was thinking about this study and saying, well, you know, after the course of a match that's 200 rounds, your jump is changing <laughs> over yeah, the whole and if weekend. it's sensitive to three thousandths, let's yeah. just assume it is, and you can play this out in your mind, if you assume that, hey, one, two, three thousandths of jump matters, mm-hmm. you're shooting 300 rounds between a train-up day and an actual match and maybe any practice before, somewhere between a 200 and 300 rounds, mm-hmm. plus any load development to get you to that point. That's not the same load, and you don't you can't do the load development for the match after the fact, so you had to have done something before. You settled on it. Fast forward by the end of day, middle of end of day two, are you still at the same throat distance or jump distance? You Probably might. not. You might be if you have carbon buildup. I, I, I don't, I don't know even the, know how this The weird works. thing is, like, I don't know the answer to this question, yes. and that's kind of why we shoot the 105s. I shoot the 105s. You shoot the 109s. They're both very forgiving for jump. Yep. And I've tested the 105s from jam all the way to 150 thousandths. And they might have a slightly different point of impact when they're you know within 10 thou to a jam versus a 100 thou jump. But the group sizes don't really change. So, exactly. So what I'm just, my philosophy these days is I start at around 60 thousandths. I've noticed from 60 to 150 that the... Um, point of impact shift there isn't one and the group sizes are all if you stacked them on top of each other they're all within the um within the standard deviation yes. of your group sizes yep. yep so that's where i do it i mean i don't do any seating depth uh testing <laughs> I, I, I jump 60 from the beginning and i never yeah. touch it again until i'm i never touch it for multiple barrels multiple calibers six mil calibers i'll uh, if it's all the same freebore from the start with the reamer then my die doesn't change i just yeah. i just never check it because it I never feel the need to. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I don't see a real benefit. Again, you have to remember the context that we're shooting within, right? PRS is not a game of 0.1-inch groups. It's a game of 1 MOA to 3 MOA targets. 
at long range with uncertainty in your position. If you can consistently get 0.3 to 0.6 inch groups for five shots or 10 shots, you are already 90% of the way there for your rifle's setup. You don't have to do much more besides the other. There's a lot of other things that go into rifle setup to make that possible. Um, But in terms of your load and making it a better load and achieving more points through precision, you really aren't going to see, you're going to get real real fast, you're going to run down the road of diminishing returns. Yeah, you're going to spend so much time and money and and components. Yeah, so it's kind of where we're at. I mean, I, I don't, I don't really mess with it. So let's just summarize this real quick. Hey, we don't stress about seating depth. We just jump it a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. We use three to four thousandths neck tension because it holds the bullet and it doesn't bang around and seat itself. Mm-hmm. We use good powder, good brass, good components. Mm-hmm. We use dry lube more so than or dry necks, uh, dry tumbling, and in our prep, make sure they're if you're sizing them, uh, make sure that you get all the lube off. Mm-hmm. And from there, use good dyes and you should have a good day. The only other thing that you said and I said differently was that I kneel every firing and you do and every don't. three firing. Yeah, so, every, every two to I mean, three. Francis wins matches, I win matches. So pick your poison. Do it. Do whatever you want with that. I just I have the case feeder and the kneeler. That's why I do it every time. Yep, I haven't had a reason I mean, to continue to do it. There's other shooters that say they'd never kneel their brass. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that win matches. <laughs> yep, yep. I can think of one right now. Yep. So... I guess do with that information what you will. Well, I'm just going to keep doing me until I have an auto annealer where I can just dump them into a bucket mm-hmm. and know that it's 100% and not have to pick one out of that little flipper tab every once in a while. Yep. I've gotten, I got mine tweaked pretty good, but yeah, you still have to mess with it once in a while. I always do it while I'm in the room. I don't just set it and walk away. You don't round to peel it? No. Dang. I'm just in the area doing other stuff while it's at, while it's working. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, all right. I think that's all I got. We can uh, let's jump out of this one. And I'm kind of hungry. Really? Yeah, I guess it is around noon. Yeah. All right. See you. All right, we're getting chicken wings. See ya. Ooh, I like it. Mm-hmm.